Uh, what is it, December 8th? Is December 8th when we're going to see John Christ? Yeah. Okay, John Christ is a, a Christian comedian, and, and if he doesn't do a very good job, I think JoJo could take his spot, okay? All right, I see a retirement plan in the future that you could be a stand-up comedian, right? You're doing great, doing great. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful to have this opportunity. This, this is absolutely an honor and a privilege to, to stand in this pulpit. And this, I say that this has been a long time coming for me, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, the, the path that God has put me on and to get me to this point. Uh, and I want to say something as well that I'm so thankful for the encouragement of my church family. If you don't, we've talked about visitors. If you don't have a church family, we're not perfect. We serve a perfect God. But having a church family is so crucial to your faith and to your continuing to love Jesus. And so when I get the opportunity to teach on a Wednesday night and somebody kind of pulls me to the side and says, man, I, I really enjoyed that. That to me is just confirmation. All right, God has put me on this path. God is faithful. So thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your love, not just for me, but for my family, for my kids. When Deacon comes in at night and he says, hey, listen to this Bible verse or this that I learned at church, that, that means the world to me. And that happens within the context of a church family. And so I thank you guys for that. It's been such a blessing for me and for my family. We've been here for a little over a year now. Yeah, it's already been over a year. So thankful, looking for many more years ahead of us. What I want to talk about before I dive into this message is, is I want to talk about three things, because when I, when I preach and when I teach, I have three things in mind. I try to always target these three things, to go for these three things, and that's, that's your head, your, your mind. I want your mind to be engaged when we study the Word of God, when we preach or when we teach. I want your thinking to be challenged, to be shaped. I want your mind to be engaged. I want your heart to your heart, I want this to penetrate your heart, to go beyond just thinking. I want it to take root in your heart. But the last thing that I want to happen, and what I'm afraid that a lot of times we probably kind of leave this one to the side as optional, is in to keep up with the H themes is, is your hands. What about our hands when our, when our minds are engaged and our heart is filled with the love of Christ? It's got to come out. It's got to come out. It's got to come out in our hands. So head, heart, and hands. So when I teach this message, I hope that all of those parts, because we're called to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's all of our being, every part of us. And so when we read and we study and we come across things like the faithfulness of God, because that's, if you didn't notice it, that's been a theme through the music that we sang this morning. I don't, Shane, he kind of knew what I was going to preach, but he picked those songs, and I believe that the Holy Spirit just laid those things out because we were singing about the faithfulness of God. We were singing about the promises, talking about Ralph. Uh, we have a promise as Christians that death is not the end of it. There's a resurrection to come. We have these promises, and these promises are based on the faithfulness of God. That, that's where our hope as Christians lies, and that's what we're going to look into today. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you would, find that, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And when you do, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in verses 15 through 22. I believe it'll be on the screen as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. There we go. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, In this confidence I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit. Some translations would say a second blessing or a second work of grace. Verse 16, To pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan them according to the flesh, that with me there should be a yes, yes, 
and a no, no? Verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. Verse 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We're going to dive into this today, God, and by the power of your Spirit, Lord, and your grace, we're going to come away with a greater understanding of who you are, God, our hearts, the love that we have, the devotion that we have for Jesus, because he is enough. That's going to ring true today, God, and we're going to respond to that. We are going to respond to that, God, because you are faithful, and we can depend upon you in all things. Bless us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, title of this sermon, I went back and forth, what should it be? And let me just go ahead and say this, I've been battling with the mucus and all these things, so I'll be sipping on water every once in a while, so I apologize for that. Uh, Title, though, is, Can I Get an Amen? Can I Get an Amen? That's the title. I thought about doing something, uh, the power of a promise, but really the reason that I picked can I get an amen is because I want, by the time that we're done with this and that we explore this and we see this, I want to have a response. I don't want you guys just to sit here today and say, yes, I agree with that. Yes, I see that. I want not only for you to do that, but to respond to this today and throughout the rest of this week and by God's grace, the rest of your life to respond to this. So can I get an amen? There's a few right there. Okay, this it's a great passage of Scripture, okay? But there is a particular verse right here that stands out. 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises. All the promises of God in Him, in Jesus, are yes. In Him they are amen to the glory of God through us. That verse, that verse is the heart of this message. You could take that verse. You could pull 2 Corinthians 1.20 out. I could preach simply on that verse, and I could be faithful to it. You can't do that with a lot of verses. That's where people get into trouble. They take a verse, they pull it out of its context, and they try to build a theology on it. You can't do that a lot of times. You need to know the context. Why why is this verse here? Why did the writer put it here? If you really want to understand the truth, this verse is one that you could. You could pull this out. I could just strictly preach on this verse today, and I feel like I could do it faithfully. But I want to keep it in its context. Why did the Apostle Paul put it here? I want to know that. Why did he put it here? What does it mean for us as Christians? And then how do we respond to that truth? So that's where we're going. So how many people have had promises made to them or you have made promises? That's everybody in here, right? So you've felt the confidence. You've felt the peace. You've felt all that comes with somebody saying, I promise to do something and coming through on that promise, right? But there's another side of the story. How many of us have made promises, had promises made to us, and they didn't come through. You feel the opposite, right? Can I trust this person anymore? Their faithfulness begins to be in question. The hope that you had is now lost because they made a promise, but they weren't able to keep it. And so the first thing I want to look at is faithfulness or integrity. Have you ever had your faithfulness or your integrity questioned? Have you ever had your faithfulness or integrity questioned? Because that's what we discover in verses 15 through 17. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is experiencing. 
In verses 15 and 16, he talks about desiring to come to them. He says, in this confidence, I intended to come to you, to the church at Corinth, before before going to Macedonia, and then coming back from Macedonia, I was going to stop again. So he tells him, I was going to visit you once, go to Macedonia, come back and visit you again. That got their hopes up. The Apostle Paul says, I want to see you twice, give you the second benefit of grace, to see you both of these times. This didn't happen. It didn't happen. Paul, for whatever reason, was not able to accomplish this. So the enemies that Paul had within the church that he describes as super apostles later in this epistle seized this opportunity to call into question the apostle Paul's integrity. He said he wanted to visit you, Corinthians, but look, he wasn't able to do it. They're calling this out. How did it happen? More than likely, what they're trying to do is question his integrity. Can he be trusted? You see, he made plans. He got your hopes up only to leave you disappointed. In verse 17, Paul begins to respond to these. He begins to refute these accusations. He says, therefore, when I was planning this, when I made these plans to visit you, to stop twice, did I make them according to the flesh? Did I make my plans? Do I travel like the rest of the world? Was I simply saying that I want to do this because it's good for me? These, my desire is to see you. Do I plan my trips not according to the purposes of God, but according to my own purposes? Paul begins to refute this because, you see, those who were against the Apostle Paul were saying that he spoke out of both sides of his mouth. That's what he means when he says, with me, was it yes, yes, and no, no? His accusers wanted everyone to believe that all he did was say what they wanted to hear when they wanted to hear it. They wanted everyone to believe that Paul's word was no good. He was not a man of integrity. Now, this is where I want us to look into something. We have to really look into this because the Apostle Paul does something. He will take a shot at his integrity to take it to really questioning God's integrity because he sees his identity being in Jesus Christ, being an ambassador of Christ. He sees his identity so wrapped up in God that a shot at his integrity, he seizes this opportunity to talk about the faithfulness of God. In verse 18, he says this, But as God is faithful... Our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, it was not yes and no. In him, in Jesus, it is always yes. So here's two things I want to look at. As Christians, does our integrity matter? We'll say, yes, it does, and that's exactly what we see the Apostle Paul here. Our integrity matters in every area of our life. Here's what I fear a lot of times. We show up on Sunday, we go through the motions, we raise our hands, we have our bumper stickers, our Christian crosses, tattoos, whatever, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, all of these things, but then when we show up on Monday at work, we lack integrity. We can't be that way. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, our integrity matters. Our faithfulness matters, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but in everything we do in the world. As a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, single, married, any of those things, whatever you do in life, your integrity matters because you carry a message the world needs to hear, and we want to put no stumbling block in front of anyone. If we can't be trusted, can our message be trusted? That's what the Apostle Paul sees here. An attack on his integrity 
puts a stumbling block in front of somebody to believe the message that he has. If he's not a man of integrity, can his words be trusted? And so he seizes this opportunity. And one of the things I want to say is absolutely it matters. It matters in so many things. So many things. The way you work. The Bible says do all that you do. Do all that you do to the glory of God. So we think we can show up to work. And I'm going to hammer on work because this is something that really convicted me. We think we can show up to work, do a half-hearted job, and God doesn't care. Yes, he does. Absolutely. The way you work, the time that you put in, your word, your dependability, the work that you produce gives and reflects that your father is good, that he cares about all things. It's more to the world you demonstrate that you're a Christian by more than just what you say and what you wear. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said this, and I remember reading it the first time, and I thought, wow, that's amazing. Because it hits at the mindset that we have. He said, the Christian shoemaker, leather shoes, the Christian shoemaker does not prove that he's a Christian by stitching a cross on every pair of shoes. You want to know how he proves he's a Christian? He makes a good pair of shoes. That's integrity. Do all that you do to the glory of God. Let your integrity be tested by the world and let it stand and hold fast because you carry a message. It's not legalism that we're talking about. We're not perfect, but we serve a perfect God. But we desire as best we can to live as people of integrity that can be depended upon so that when we get an opportunity to share the message, it is yes and yes, not yes and no. It's not wishy-washy, back and forth. And Paul demonstrates that the preaching of Jesus Christ points to the faithfulness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he tells him when he comes to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I didn't preach to you with human words of eloquence. It wasn't in my power that your faith would rest. I came to you weak and in fear and in trembling, but the power of God. It was by the power of God that he preached. It wasn't in his own doings. Do you know how much peace I find in that, that when I stand here this morning, I don't have to put on a show for you. I don't want your faith to rest on how good of a preacher I am or how good Jojo is or how good Pastor Brown is. God gifts us and gives us these abilities, but ultimately it comes down to the faithfulness of God. We're vessels to be used by God. We do all that we can do, but the power of our preaching is found in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, when I preached, I made it my point to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. I got two pieces of wood and three nails for you. He didn't try to make this a fancy message. He didn't have to because the preaching of the cross demonstrates fully the faithfulness of God. That's where our power rests as Christians. So we talked about faithfulness. What about fulfillment? Fulfillment. Verse 20 reads this, for all the promises of God, all the promises of God in him are yes, in him they are amen to the glory of God through us, all the promises. As speaking, I believe Paul in this moment, the New Testament is being written and it's being compiled and put together. So I think he's really heavily drawing on the promises made in the Old Testament. But this absolutely includes anything within the New Testament. Jesus holds all things together. So you see promises within the Old Testament, they are found and fulfilled in Jesus. And there's not an agreement, I was talking with Jojo about this last night, there's not 100% agreement on just how many promises there are in the Bible. But there's a Canadian school teacher, I think school teachers do a pretty good job of, of, of detailing things, so he read the Bible for the 27th time. His 27th time, and on this last time, he made it his task to tally up 
all the promises he could find that were between God and man. God making a promise to man. Came out with 7,487. Praise God, I don't have a 7,487-point sermon today, okay? I don't have that for you. You don't want that, okay? We're going to be here for three or four weeks if we try to go through that. So talking about the promises of God, I don't have time this morning to cover all of those. But I want to put that number before you. Right or wrong, that's a big number. And that tells you how many promises God has made. That God is a God that makes promises. God is a God that keeps promises. I want this message to stir in your heart a desire to go through the scriptures and find these promises. Take what we study today, what we hear today, and apply it in your own life because you will need certain promises that others may not need in a time. The more promises you pull in, the more that you've got in your bucket, the more you take before God and you say, God, you made this promise. And in Jesus, it's yes. You want a powerful prayer life? Take God's own word and set it before him and say, in Jesus, you said this. That's what prayer ultimately is. Taking God's own word and laying it before him and saying, Father, you said this. I look to Jesus and the answer is yes. God is a God of promises. He's a God that made prophecies as well. And I really want to dive into this because we're talking about Jesus. It's a focus on Jesus. Old Testament, Genesis chapter 3. If you've been around me, I've said this because when I really understood this, it helped me to just see the story of the Bible. Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve have sinned, sin has entered the world, relationship is broken, they hide from God because of their shame, God goes looking for them. God, when we're in our sin and we're running from God, He's still coming after you. And in Genesis 3.15, what is known as the first gospel, God steps on the scene and He says, there's going to come one from woman. He's going to come from woman. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And in so doing, his heel will be bruised. We find that prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.15 talks about that at the cross, he nailed our debts, paid our sins, and triumphed over Satan, the serpent. We find fulfillment. God speaks this thousands of years. You look to the cross. Through his death, Jesus accomplishes this. Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant. God calls Abraham out of a land of pagan idolatry and says, From you, you don't have any children, but from you, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. You'll be a father of a multitude. And in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Paul in Galatians 3 hones in on this, though, and he says that seed, it's not just plural, it's singular. There's one that's going to come from the line of Abraham that is going to be a blessing to all the nations. Anybody want to take a guess at the lineage of Jesus Christ? He came from the line of Abraham. Came from the line of Abraham. Through Jesus, all the nations will be blessed. This is why we have these signs. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, because all nations are blessed through Jesus as we carry this message of the gospel to the ends of the world. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. God says, David, from you I will raise up from your line one to sit on your throne forever. Forever from the line of David. So when you flip to Matthew chapter 1, a lot of people when they get into Bible reading, they go to Matthew. We're going to start in the New Testament where we don't understand the Old Testament. We go to Matthew, flip to Matthew chapter 1, starts with a genealogy. So we go down to verse 18. Then first 17 verses are some names we can't pronounce. But if you understand the Old Testament and the promises of God, when you read those first few lines that say, this is the genealogy of Jesus from the line of Abraham, from the line of David, 
your heart should leap. God made promises, and he kept those promises. That is what our hope rests in. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He would bear our sins and iniquities. He would be crushed for us. And I want to look at the crucifixion. John 19, John's account of Jesus' death is littered with fulfillment of prophecy. He makes it a point. Fulfillment of prophecy, fulfillment of prophecy. They divided Jesus' garments and they cast lots for his clothing. John makes sure to tell us that. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, written somewhere a thousand years before. Perfect detail takes place. God said it would happen, so it happened. But what I want to show you, I'm going to put this one on the screen, John 19. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. So to this point, he has done everything that needed to happen. All things have been accomplished. There's one thing left, though, that Scripture might be fulfilled. Think of this. As he's hanging on the cross in brutal agony, his mind is still thinking, I want to fulfill the words of my Father. Even in his moment of most pain and suffering, he still says his thinking is that Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus said these words, I thirst. I thirst. Goes on, verse 29. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. They filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on hyssop and they put it to his mouth. Verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. When we hear it is finished, mainly what we talk about is that our sins have been paid for. Telestai, that's what that means. Absolutely, that is the uh, greater meaning of that passage. But also, God spoke that the Messiah would have this sour wine pushed to his mouth. And Jesus, knowing that all things must be accomplished, said, I thirst. And they take this sour wine and they press it to his lips. And the moment that that's accomplished, there's no reason for him to stay. Every prophecy that God had made up until that point had now been fulfilled. Jesus did everything that God had sent him forth to do. Something that seemed so insignificant, a sponge with sour wine, Jesus saw it as his mission to accomplish it. Listen to me. There's details in your life that you think that God doesn't particularly care about because they seem insignificant. This passage should tell you the opposite. Even the small things, if it's a promise that you think is just a small area in your life, take it before God because he cares to fulfill all of his promises that he might be glorified and his people might be blessed. Even the smallest details, he's faithful. John goes on to talk about that not a bone in Jesus' body was broken. John records that Jesus was our Passover lamb. Exodus 12, 46 talks about that Passover lamb, that not a bone could be broken of the Passover lamb. Not a bone in Jesus' body was broken. They pierced his side because he died quicker than most people died. And he's hanging on this cross in this moment, and they come by, and they see that he's already dead. So they pierced his side. Zechariah 12.10 said that they would look upon him whom they'd pierced. Everything that God said concerning the Messiah took place. Why do I show you this? Why do I show you this this morning? Because I want you to see that not a single prophecy that was spoken about the Messiah's death was left unfulfilled. Even that sponge and sour wine, if God had not fulfilled that, there would be one thing left that he had not accomplished. And you could say, he's not faithful. He missed one. Oh, your God is 99.9%? No, no, no. He's 100. In God, it's yes, not yes and no, not yes and maybe. It's yes. 
in Jesus Christ. Whatever God has said will come to pass because he will make sure that it does. God has given a promise or promises to his people that we can rest on. Church family, we can have confidence that these things will come to pass and we need only to look to Jesus to see that God is saying to us a resounding yes. Yes. Will you save me? Look at Jesus. Yes. Will you sustain me? Look at Jesus. Yes. Will you keep me? Will you bless me? Look at Jesus. God says to you, yes, I will. Not yes and no. Yes, I will. We don't have the God of Islam. That at the end of your life, you better hope you did enough good because when you stand before him, you don't know. We don't have the Greek gods and the Roman gods that Paul, that would sacrifice their own children to appease their gods because they, they didn't know. What kind of rest and confidence do you have in that relationship? Absolutely none. But God sent his son to fulfill every prophecy, to hold every promise true so that you and I can look to God and know that he is saying to us through Jesus, not yes and no, but yes Absolutely, yes. But something I want to hit on is that it says these promises are in Him. They are in Him. You read the New Testament, that phrase is of utmost importance. In Him, in Christ Jesus. You'll hear it over and over and over. Normally this is what happens at the end of the sermon, but I'm going for it right here. Today, if you're sitting here and you're not in Christ, everything I'm preaching is only a possibility for you. It's not a reality. It's a possibility because God looks at you and says, yes, I will save you. Yes, I will place you in my son through faith in him. But it's only a possibility. But for those that find themselves in Christ, these are more than a possibility. These promises are reality that you can live your life upon. And it's found in Christ. In Christ. So what's our response? How, how do we respond to this? I told you I wanted a response this passage, when it says that all these promises in him are yes and in him are amen, that is right. Jesus is known in Revelation 3 as the amen, the faithful and true witness. But other translations word this a little differently, and I think they really get it what the Apostle Paul is saying. What he's really saying is God is saying yes to you in and through Jesus. We utter our amen back to God through Jesus. That's what this passage is saying. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. God is holy. We are sinful. How do you bridge that gap? Jesus. God says to you, yes. And through Jesus we say, amen, Father. You are faithful. You will keep your promises. Everything you said you'll do, you will do. Jesus is the way by which God speaks to us. We see his love and his faithfulness. Jesus is the way by which we lay hold of this love and faithfulness. Jesus is the reason we say amen. If you've ever wondered why Christians say amen, this passage answers it for you. It's more than just the closing of a prayer. A lot of times we say amen, right? That's, we're, just, we're done with my prayer, amen. We may even put in Jesus' name, but we really don't know what we're saying. The Apostle Paul is telling us here, you say your amen because you know that Jesus is sufficient. That anything that God has promised in Jesus' name, not maybe, amen. Because God is faithful. God is true. The word amen is a, is a very interesting word. It comes originally from the Hebrew as amen. Translated into the Greek as amen. To the Latin, amen. To the English, Guess it. Amen. It stays the same. It's one of the words that is almost universally recognized. 
across the world. You can almost go anywhere and say amen. If anybody has any knowledge of God, they, they know what you're talking about. There's not a lot of words like that. And the last word in the Bible is amen. I'm coming quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. 24 out of the 27 books in the New Testament end with amen. It's a powerful word. It's more than just the closing of our prayers. It's more than just, yeah, get them, preacher. I'm not against that. I love the response of the people. Amen, amen. But I think sometimes because we don't really understand it, we tend to use it uh, not in its fullest sense. I want a congregation that responds, but I want your response. I want you to know when you say amen. I want you to know it's more than just saying, that's a good point, preacher. I want you to utter your amen with confidence and power because the preacher has said something that's aligned with the word of God and that's powerful and that in Jesus will come to fulfillment. So when you say your amen, amen, amen. I believe that. I know that's true. God will keep his promises. Or a lot of times we've heard that it's so be it. So be it. Preacher's on the stage preaching evangelistically. If you don't share the gospel, your neighbor's going to hell. Amen. So be it. So be it. Okay. We don't want to use it that way, all right? We've always been in the service where there's the awkward amen. So I want to help us to avoid that. Yeah. Let the preacher finish the sentence. That may be a true statement, but let him finish that statement that if you share the gospel, God is gracious and God will save. Amen. Don't just kind of go, ah, so be it. Neighbor's going to hell. So be it. Amen. I'm on. Okay? It's more than that. Okay? It is our way of expressing rock-solid confidence that God is faithful. Our amen is wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus in him is always yes. We utter our amen with confidence and power, not because of who we are. It may be a weak amen that you can get out, but the power comes from Jesus, not from you. It comes from Jesus. We say in Jesus' name to express that fact that we know God's going to keep his promises. We know it. God is faithful. We can have hope. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask in my name, that I will give to you. Now, we've got to put a caveat in there because he says, so that the Father will be glorified. Don't ask for a million dollars. You're not going to get that. Okay? Unless it glorifies the Father. That's the way your prayer should be. Your prayer should be in line with God's will. You've come to know the promises. You've come to know the promise giver. You see the character of God through his promises, and you can utter that amen. So, can I get an amen? What I don't want to happen is to have you guys say less amens at the end of this. I want to hear more. And we'll hear a resounding amen because you, when you say it, you know it's based in Jesus Christ. When you end your prayers with your family, amen. Amen. God has blessed us. God has given us these things. Whatever prayer you pray, I want your amen to carry power because you realize that it finds its power in Jesus. So here's where I want to kind of begin to wrap up just a little bit. But before we go on to looking, because I want to I wanna look at a few specific promises that are for all the people of God. That's what I want us to do today. But i got to set some ground rules because when it says all the promises, it literally means all the promises. The Apostle Paul says all the promises find their yes in him. But how do we rightly apply these promises? How do we rightly apply them? General versus specific. we got to know this. General versus specific. There are promises that are given that are for all the people of God throughout all times. And there are specific promises that were for a specific person at a specific time. They still find their yes in Jesus. They still find their yes in Jesus. But when God makes promises to David, they're promises to David. We can learn from those things and see the faithfulness of God. Hezekiah was given 15 more years of his life. That doesn't mean if you say, God, you got to do it, 
That's not what that's saying. But you can see in the faithfulness of God to Hezekiah that he's a God that can give life, that he can extend, that he hears prayers, and that he cares. So know the difference between general and specific. Also notice this. God's promises are many times conditional. This is the one we don't want to hear. When you're reading these promises, you need to look and see if there's an if connected to it. It finds its yes in Jesus, but it's not just to name it and claim it. Can we get Hebrews 11 on the screen? I want us to look at Hebrews 11 to see what I'm talking about. There's a condition that is required. This is the uh, hall of faith. Joe talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. I just wanted to pull this part out talking about uh, conditional promises. Verse 32, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. The writer of Hebrews is talking about these great men and women of faith who, through faith, through faith, they subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. Goes on to say, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. They became valiant in battle. They turned flight to the armies of the aliens. It's by faith. There's a condition. You believe in Jesus, but then you have to live these things out. These promises are set before you. They find their yes in Jesus, but will your faith equal obedience as well? Will your faith only be mental assent? I see it. I agree with it. Or will it also come out through your heart, through your hands, and live a life of obedience? God, there's your promise. It's an if. It has a condition. I will believe you. I will be obedient. And you will bring it to fulfillment. Last thing before we move on. Do not assume to know precisely when, where, or how God's promises will be fulfilled in your life. Okay? Don't assume to know. This is what we get into trouble a lot of times because we say, God, I want this. I see this promise, and I want it to happen this way. Praise God it happens when God wants and how God wants. That shouldn't deter you from coming after it full speed. But be willing to let God answer it on his time and in his way. It's far better that he does. One of the things I fear, we take Bible verses, and we take them out of their context. And Jeremiah 29, 11, I don't want to shatter anybody's hopes. But I want to help you understand Jeremiah 29 11. Jeremiah 29 11 is on coffee cups, it's on bumper stickers. People graduate from school, we give them Jeremiah 29 11. It's a beautiful promise that God gave, but it was spoken to Israel before they went into captivity. God says, I have plans for you to prosper you and to keep you. We see God's character in that. But specifically, Jeremiah 29 11 was spoken to the people of Israel, and it took 70 years. It took 70 years for the fulfillment to happen. But it did happen. God didn't forget about it. You may have had promises that God has given you that you have not seen the fulfillment of these. God has not forgot. He has not forgotten. He's still working all things for good for those that love him. God gives promises. God keeps promises. But he keeps them in his own time, in his own way. And that is to our benefit that he does that. So where I want to land this plane, if I can say it that way, is I want to look. I want to look at three specific promises in the New Testament that are given to all the people of God. All the people of God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said to me, here's the promise, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds to this, therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The promise, church family, is that the grace of God is sufficient. God has given a promise that his grace is sufficient to save you 
It's sufficient to sustain you, and it is sufficient to empower you. God called the Apostle Paul to preach the gospel. And I had this picture growing up of this giant man that just was a thundering preacher. But when you read the New Testament, Paul says, I came to you in fear and trembling, and my speech wasn't good. These super apostles actually said, uh, yeah, his letters are, wow, they're amazing. But when he talks to you in person, it's embarrassing. Gives me strength. Gives me strength, okay? That I can be uh, maybe not the greatest orator and all these things, but if the grace of God has called me to be a preacher of God's word, it will sustain me to do it. Because the fact that I'm standing on this stage is a work of God's grace. God can call an introvert to be a preacher of God's word. And it may not seem like much to you guys, but this is, this is huge for me. And there are people in here today that your greatest fear is not death, it's public speaking, because public speaking is probably going to kill you, right? That, that was me. Public speaking was my greatest fear, okay? In school, all I had to do was go around the roll, call the roll. I'm an H, I'm kind of in the middle. I had plenty of time to get my nervousness built up before I had to utter my ear, you know, or whatever I could get out. I was so nervous. Public speaking was a crippling fear to me. And when God called me to be a preacher and teacher of the Word of God, I went, that's foolish. No, you would never do that. You wouldn't call me to do something like that. You can find somebody way better to use for that. But then as people said, hey, I, I think you've got this gift. I, I see something in you. And they began to confirm this within me. And then when I got to this verse, and I said, God, you, you've called me to do it. I don't have the ability. I'm not a good speaker. But His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for me. It's sufficient for you. God's called you. Each and every one of you have a purpose and a place to play in the kingdom of God. And the grace of God is sufficient to keep you, to save you, and to empower you to fulfill God's purposes for you, whatever it may be. And you know what happens every time I stand on a stage and I go, man, I'm, I just, you may hear it in my voice sometimes. I, I, before I walk up, sometimes this verse has to be echoed in my mind. God's grace is sufficient. I'm not going to let you fall, son. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you. I hold this verse so tightly because it's God's promise to me. And through Jesus, I can say back to him, amen. And God will keep me. Same is true for you. His grace is sufficient for you. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation to those who are, here's that phrase, in Christ Jesus. That's a family. That is a promise to us, church family, that if you find yourself in Christ Jesus, no matter what the enemy tries to tell you, no matter what you possibly try to tell yourself, because sometimes we're most difficult on ourselves. You may be struggling with a particular sin, but this verse tells me that if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. The wrath of God does not abide on you. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God, not an enemy. You're a child. God has made promises. He will keep you. He will protect you. Yes, we struggle with sins. Romans, 8, Romans chapter 8 goes on to say that we've been given the spirit of adoption. To cry out, Abba, Father. And whatever sins we may have, we can overcome them. But there's no condemnation. This needs to stir within you a boldness. Not an arrogance. You only have your boldness in Christ. Shane said that God is our rock. That's absolutely right. Jesus Christ is our rock. Rock of ages. Beautiful hymn, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That's drawn from Moses. Moses on Mount Sinai. God, show me your glory. 
Show me your glory. God says, I can't. It will utterly destroy you. But he says, there's a rock. You get inside that rock and my glory will pass by and you'll be able to see part of it. Let me tell you something, church family, when you're in Jesus Christ, it's not just protection. It ain't just protection from God's glory. It gives you a way to see and experience God's glory. This side of the cross. You, you hide yourself in Jesus because then you can experience and see the grace and the glory of God. It's not just protection against wrath. God says, I'm going to put you in my son so that you can see. You can see me. You can see me. And then we long for that day in the resurrection when all things are made new and we can see him face to face. But until that day, we place ourselves in Christ and the glory of God is able to pass by and we experience it. We experience it. I want to ask the worship team to come up at this point. I want to end with response. That's what I want to do. I want to look at one more promise, and I want to end with response. Because I'm looking at kind of general promises. But I'm telling you the grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God is sufficient. I'm telling you that there's no condemnation that you can experience God's glory. And this last one is Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus goes on, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. What's this last promise I'm talking about? The blood of Jesus is sufficient. It lacks nothing. If you have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, you can come into the holiest of holies where angels fear to stand. Not because of who you are, but because the blood of Jesus is upon you. And if the blood is upon you, it's sufficient that you can stand before the Father in a time of grace, in a time of need, and know that He hears you. Know that He will answer your prayers because you are praying promises that God has made and they've been kept by Jesus. You're sprinkled by the blood. God hears those prayers. He answers those prayers. The blood is sufficient. It is sufficient for us. So I want us to end today by responding first in worship. You hear these truths about God's faithfulness, His goodness, about the sufficiency of the blood. It should lead us to a desire to worship God for all that He is and all that He continues to do. Here's what I want you to do individually, though. I want to ask you to stand at this time. I want to ask you, if you would, to come forward. There's a powerful thing that happens when we come forward as a church family to worship. I want you to call on these promises. Whatever promises you have right now that you need, that you know that are in the Word of God, I want this sermon, hopefully, to help you call them to remembrance and know that God is faithful to see them through. 